So this morning in um, one of the groups, we had the opportunity to share about the power of chanting. And this chant is something that you can use when you feel um, upset or distressed or overwhelmed, overwhelmed. And you don't have to sit in front of a shrine. You can be on, on a bus <laughs> or in your car going to work and you have to face some difficult meeting or difficult decision or a funeral and someone dear is just passed away and you have to go and, and face that. So, and the words are very simple. From that verb, wandana, which is to pay respects or, or pay homage, you say, bhutang one day, damang one day, sangam one day, V-A-N-D-E, like accent aigu, uh, accent on the E. So it sounds French, but it's Pali. There's no accent, but it's one day. And it sounds like English. Bhutang, one day. Buddha, one day. One day for the Buddha. One day for the Dhamma. One day for the Sangha. Or one moment, one breath. I can breathe one breath for the Buddha, one breath for the Dhamma, one breath for the Sangha, because that's all I can do. You, just the moments are not, you, you can't think, you can't breathe because of constriction, <coughs> angst, anxiety, grief. The heart is cracked, broken, split. The mind is immobilized. The body is frozen. So pull this out of the depths. If we, this is the power of practice. If we do this continuously and train ourselves in something very simple, then it's like a little emergency tool. You know, like that tick um, fork. That you got a tick, you get the little fork, and you just eke it out in a, in a jiffy. Harmlessly, it doesn't, it, no head stuck inside afterwards. <laughs> so, um, and it's, it's, it's a, a chant of praise and devotion to something very pure and protective. So we need these tools for everyday life. And I've used this. A dear friend of mine, of our, of our community, um, had very has a very difficult situation with a child um, now grown up who lives on the street and it's chronic it's not going to go away and so this she told me that she used this to just survive during terrible crises with this young woman and when she told me I had taught her the chant as Bhutang one day, Tamang one day, Sangam one day, and she, she's French, and she came back and said, it was Buddha one day. <laughs> and, and I heard it, and then I thought, that's so ingenious, what she did with that. 
she made it the Buddha for, I can do this for one day. I dedicate this day to the Buddha and this day to the Dhamma, this day to the Sangha, or this breath, or this moment. I would like to dedicate the retreat um, and what I'm doing to my teacher, my first teacher and my preceptor um, 30 years ago, Sayadu Upandita, many of you know, who passed away, it'll be one year on the 16th of April since he passed. A very great being. And when we make these dedications, we feel so grateful. We live with gratitude. So let's try it. Let's try to do this one day chant today, tonight. Buddha one day, Dhamma one day, Sangha one day, Buddha one day, Dhamma one day, Sangha one day. Buddha one day, Dhamma one day, Sangha one day, Buddha one day, Dhamma one day, Sangha this way and if you keep repeating it and repeating it through repetition you don't have to think of the words because you it's easy to memorize you don't have to do all three because the Dhamma is in the Buddha and the Sangha is in the Buddha that's we all comes out of the Buddha's enlightenment his perfection his purification is through the Dhamma, and then the Sangha arose out of that. So all we have to really remember are two words, Bhutan one day, and then if it can't be today, you're actually saying, may it be one day, that I can really take that refuge. But what a wonderful reminder, <coughs> so that we don't have to feel lost and without the ground under our feet. All we need is the ground under two feet. We don't need a, an acre or even a, a meter. A square meter is bigger than our two feet. 
But if we have that little bit, this gives us some stability. And then we can grow that. We can, then when we get a little joy out of that, we can start to do damang one day, sangam one day. And it's today. It's not, I can't do it now, but it's, it's coming. It's on its way. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangam Namasami In the Japanese uh, aesthetic tradition, there's a word that I just learned yesterday called wabi-sabi. It's the spirit of giving something which may not be new or perfect as a gift. And I was um, trying to wrap something up for a nun that I'm going to see tomorrow, and it had a little, a little imperfection, and I tried to improve it by adding a little paint, and then someone told me that that's that in the spirit of wabi sabi. Am I saying it right? That actually is meant that it ends up improving the gift. Because the, the intention and the effort and the application of one's energy to make this object more beautiful than it is, even though it's old or used, or it was given to me, I, I can't go shopping for gifts, but 
And so the beauty of um, receiving so much kindness is that we can try to uh, grow the kindness out of that by giving it again in a meaningful way. And I discovered that this word comes from the meaning of wabi-sabi, which is that nothing is finished, nothing is forever, and nothing is perfect. So it's really a contemplation of impermanence and an appreciation of the aging and the, the beauty that things take on through their authenticity. And when we adorn an, uh, a gift um, with our love and our pure intention, we give it a greater authenticity and a greater beauty, even though there's that imperfection. And that the imperfection becomes an adornment. So the fact that we suffer and that our suffering sometimes feels like it's breaking us, we, we might feel broken, out of our brokenness can come a breakthrough. And if we follow the ways of purity and purification in the way that the Buddha taught, then our purity of heart, our purity of intention, our dedication to not a perfection that is just looking good on the outside, but comes from a heart that is maybe lean and withered. But actually that's the meaning of wapisabi. Original meaning is lean and withered. And yet it has an intrinsic elegance and dignity, which is beyond compare. And because it is impermanent, this, it is authentic. If it was permanent, it would be plastic. <laughs> and plastic, I discovered, is also not permanent. <laughs> surprise, surprise. I found some pieces of a bucket in the second floor of our workshop dur- during the winter, which had been chewed by a squirrel hungry squirrel, because the creatures really struggled during the winter to find food. So it picked up a bucket and it was trying to rip it to pieces. I found all these little scraps of plastic, white plastic bucket on the floor. And I thought, wow, well, what is this? This is um, food for a squirrel. Hmm. Not permanent. Nothing in this samsara is permanent. There is nothing in the conditioned world that is permanent. And yet we can find beauty and truth in in that. In fact, it is because of contemplating the impermanence, the transience of things, the unpleasantness, the, the suffering, the decay, the dukkha of 
things, we can discover that in everything. Even that which is pleasant, seems to be pleasant, we see it withering in front of our eyes. That cell phone that people stood in line for years ago is now resold and not wanted anymore. Within a short time, the things that we would line up for, we don't want them anymore. This happens even in marriage. Somebody that was so dear, then we turn our backs on. We don't want that anymore. Because the mind is also so fickle, the most fickle of all. The Buddha um, didn't really give one word just to describe the speed with which the mind changes. It couldn't be described in one word because it is that fast and that untrustworthy. So what is there in this world that we can trust that is truly not impermanent, not dukkha, and not... um, False, not false. What is true? It's not the self. And it's, em- it's empty, but in, it's empty in a way that fills us, that makes us feel satiated. And that is Nibbana, the unconditioned. And the Buddha is, is giving us a training a possibility for training ourselves to realize the unconditioned in this conditioned realm. So dukkha is something worthy of investigating. This is why the Four Noble Truths are a mainstay for us on the path. And the discovery of the Four Noble Truths through our meditation practice, our ability to notice this is suffering is a golden opportunity. But then we, we suffer, and when we're in the middle of it, we feel broken and helpless, and we, don't, we can't seem to easily find the way out. But when we practice, that gives us tools, that gives us a readiness, it gives us um, a salve, an antibiotic. So I wanted to mention that tonight as a way of emphasizing the a possibility of looking at suffering as a teacher. We talked about this in one of the groups. How can I, in the middle of my fear and dread, my terror and my brokenness, see my suffering or suffering that's arising through the the normal events, the ordinary, regular events that happen to everyone. Sickness, loss of the loved, aging, dying. How do we, how can we see that as teacher? And uh, I, I wanted to really emphasize the importance of virtue purification. Actually, 
This path is called the path of purification, the Eightfold Noble Path. And the foundation for it is sila. And morality, morality isn't a very popular word. I don't hear it very much. And when I use it, I, I, for me, it's a beautiful word. Because, in fact, our moral fabric is not the moral fabric of the heart. The fabric of the heart is moral. Isn't anything else. When the heart is impure, um, we can be aware of it very quickly. Think of what it feels like when you, you do something that you, it, how you feel about yourself when you do something that you wouldn't like done to you. When you do that to someone else, what does it feel like? Do we feel uh, tightness anywhere in the belly? Do we feel a burning sensation if we do it with anger? Do we have um, restless energy afterwards? Do we remember it? Does it come up when we meditate? Does regret and remorse arise in our consciousness when, when we remember these things? So, you know, the three limbs of the path, right speech, right action, and right livelihood, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Those are how we spend our time, how we use our energy. But before that comes right view, right intention. And right intention, right view, of course, is the, the very doorway into the path. The right understanding, that we start to see the danger, the downfall of not being aligned with what is pure, what is moral, what is right, what is harmless, what is safe for us and others. But right intention is kama. Kama, karma is intention. And right thought, right intention, is really the crown with which we adorn our morality. The more coarse forms of morality, we can keep precepts, very important. The Buddha's definition of a human being is one who keeps the five precepts. How many people think that, you know, having the occasional drink is not a problem? Does that mean I'm not a human being because I have, you know, if you drink at a party or, or a dinner, you have dinner, you have a glass. In Italy it would be impossible, maybe. <laughs> or maybe here also, I don't know. We don't, our uh, monastic code forbids any kind of intoxicating substance. Why? Because famous foremost teaching of the Buddha is that heedlessness is the path to death. And heedfulness is the path to the deathless. So if, a, if taking something 
out of enjoyment would contribute in any small way to our being not 100% capable of heedfulness, that's a danger to our moral perfection or our moral work to grow in, in morality, to grow in more alliance, morality, more alliance, more unification. We want unification of mind. We want the stillness. We want samadhi. What is that? That stillness, that calm, that inner peace. It starts from the outer rim, which is moral conduct. Moral conduct, moral action, moral speech, moral thought. That it becomes more refined as we progress or as we evolve, as we mature. So we realize that precepts are a protection because they take us in a direction. We're trying to incline our minds to the unconditioned. It is difficult for us as conditioned, embodied in a totally conditioned phenomena, the passing show. There's a little baby, sweet, lovely, innocent, pure, growing, adult, teenage, adult, growing, growing, aging, aging, you know, withering, withering, skeleton, corpse, burnt, dust, earth, air, water, heat, cold, fire, element. That's the, that's the transience of this form. So, but while, while consciousness, the energy of the heart is filled with life, consciousness um, animates this form and we're embodied in it to use morality as our refuge, our conduct, to align ourselves outwardly so that we would not harm any living thing intentionally. Intentionally. This is how intention is upheld. To not to make it safe for any living creature, any little animal, any even an insect, and someone mentioned the Zika. What if you have an insect that will kill you? We try not to. We try to live without harming as much as we can. And we're not perfect. So even in our monastic code, we have rules and we have an outer rim of rules that we must never, never violate. All the rules are sacrosanct. And the uh, admonition or the, the Buddha encourages us to think of these rules um, and see danger in the slightest fault. But then, you know, through lack of mindfulness, through carelessness, some of the minor rules, quite frequently we, you know, even if we accidentally dig the soil, we dig the soil. So we have to, like when you're shoveling snow, 
you don't know how deep the snow is and suddenly you've, you've pulled up some earth and we might have killed a plant. Of course, in winter it would be frozen, but we don't know what's under that plant. So we have confession. And confession means we acknowledge, depending on this, how important that, how, where that rule is in the different categories, we can either acknowledge to ourselves, oh, there's that. I will do better, I will try. We have an awareness, we have an understanding, we have right view about the danger of not aligning ourselves with that which protects us. And if it's a more serious rule, then we confess to another monastic and we do this regularly. And what happens, it's not like then you get whipped, because you, (laughs) but it's just, you know, it's more like, you, you acknowledge, you speak to this mis- misstep. You speak to it and you express your intention to do better. And your, your cohort in the robe says, um, strive on, sister, recognize your fault or, and offers forgiveness. It's just, you know, it's, it's not that Either of us are perfect, but we're both striving for that, which is safety, so that we can offer, we can be trustworthy. We can be worthy of the trust of our community. If we just go about, well, that rule's not so. This is the Buddha's legacy to us. He has handed down these different levels of morality for householders, five precepts. For renunciant holders, eight precepts. For the novice monks and nuns, 10 precepts. For the monks, 227. For the nuns, 311. It's not because we're more mischievous or something. (laughs) It's actually to protect us because as women, we're more vulnerable. So no, we shouldn't be traveling on our own in a uninhabited area. We should have a companion. Things like that. We should have a lock on our door. We should not travel with a caravan of thieves. This is one of the ways that I justify going on an airplane (laughs) by myself because I consider it a caravan. And I don't think they're all thieves there. Um, I don't have money anyway, but my bowl is very nice. (coughs) I always keep it right next to me. So moral conduct. How do we conduct ourselves? Think of a a conductor in a symphony orchestra, there's one person in the front who has this little wand. He's not a magician, but he creates magic because everybody in the orchestra watches this little wand and plays their instrument according to whether the wand is up or sideways or down. I don't know. I've never played in an orchestra, but there's a certain rhythm and elegance and harmony and integrity of conductor and, and, 
and group, that they're completely aligned, they're so in tune, in sync with each other, they usually don't miss a beat. All these, this array of instruments, drums and trombones, and bass and violins and flutes, and they make these glorious sounds because the conductor guides them. Think of the Buddha as our conductor. The Buddha is, for me, the Buddha is here and now alive. He's also historical. He really did live and walk on this planet and teach in human form. He wasn't a god. But he perfected himself through training his mind. And he gives us this training and through these teachings that are handed down to us in 84,000 verses, he remains our conductor. So, we take precepts. That's how you join the orchestra. And the instrument is this body-mind. This is the instrument. How do we play it? Are we playing it in tune? Or are we making some kind of shrill sounds. I hate this. I hate you. I can't stand myself. But this is not lovely. This is not in alignment with morality, with more unity, more alliance. We want to be the Buddha's ally. We want to play the, the sound of the Dhamma in our own hearts, in our own being, in our own expression, action, speech, and thought. But we start where we are. Even somebody who's been a criminal can take up this practice. It's nobody who has that understanding, that right view of what works in this world, fraught with greed, hatred, and delusion, this mind besieged by greed, hatred, and delusion, what works? What will give us refuge? What will save us? What will make it safe? To be saved is to be safe from that. So we recognize the Buddha as our conductor, and we try to conduct ourselves according to his instructions. Five precepts. Not a, it's not a huge renunciation. But it does require renunciation. It requires giving up our own free will. I don't want to play that note at that moment. I want to play it when I want. I want. So to give up our, our, our views and opinions about what is right and when it's right and just try out what the Buddha suggested. Try using harmless acts, harmless conduct. Try it. Try using harmless speech, speech that offers integrity, that comes from integrity, speech that is gentle and true, speech that is encouraging and courageous. Sometimes it takes a lot of courage to speak in a way that you feel is beneficial, is timely, is harmless, but the 
the and and it's well intentioned, but the other person might not like it. But it may help them. And if we don't offer that to them, then it's as if we haven't thrown them a lifeline. It's almost like and and we have to judge this. This takes a lot of we have to train ourselves in these things and sometimes we get it wrong. And then we can say, I'm sorry, I didn't I, I shouldn't have spoken. I was giving an example of I mean all of us use email. I was years ago, long time ago, when email first was invented and it arrived at the doorstep of the monastery, I protested. No, we shouldn't do this. This is going to ruin us. We need to be secluded and enclosed here and, and keep the world out. But of course, you know, then it came and then it was there to stay and and now we use it. Also, we use it. So, um, I don't always answer my emails. I can't, I just can't keep up. And somebody got very offended that I didn't answer her. And she showed up right before our winter retreat from, uh, she lives in Thailand. And she said, the first thing she said to me was, you didn't answer my email. (laughs) And uh, she's an old supporter and her mother is sick. And I, I felt so bad, but I didn't really think it was needed and I had so much to prepare to get ready for the retreat, to put things down. And uh, ordinarily I wouldn't have said anything, but I thought I have to, I just have to say, please have compassion for me. I couldn't answer your email. She was still angry, but I spoke my truth. She was still angry, and then I just repeated it, please have compassion for me. This is sometimes what we have to do when we can't, we want to serve other people, but the ways that we're doing it is not taking care of ourselves. Then that's a very important conduct. Right conduct doesn't always mean, yes, you've kept all the precepts, but there are other ways in which we conduct ourselves where we're not really taking care of ourselves. We might be keeping the precepts, but we have to use wisdom with these precepts. And we have to be true to ourselves also. So right speech, it was, it was a risky thing to do. And I think she did leave with something else to ponder. Even if she couldn't have compassion right then, I know that, of course she will, she's a, a practitioner of the Dhamma. And any time that somebody asks you for forgiveness, you can't say no. It's difficult to say, no, I won't forgive you. If you're, on, if you're trying to align yourself with the Buddha's moral code. So that's the bottom line for us as monastics. We always offer each other forgiveness for these rules that are forgivable easily.
And then the ones that are more serious requires quite a lot of monastics present. And for us bhikkhunis, it would be, because there's so few of us, it would be very difficult. So we have to be even more vigilant in not going to the more dangerous rim of the container. Or we burn ourselves. And then there are the disrobing offenses, which, well, it doesn't mean that you're evil, but it means you're so out of alignment that this form isn't right for you. So go and, and live in household life and try to keep five precepts, minimum. But even if someone breaks the five precepts, but they recognize that they have done something terrible, you know, this is why the death penalty, for example, is like, no, you cannot be forgiven. Not to kill any living being. Says, Let everyone, if, they, if their view can be reformed, restored to some understanding, then give them a chance. Makes me think of John Lennon. Give peace a chance. Give forgiveness a chance. You know, let, let people try. So right speech, right conduct. Now we come to right thought. I know I'm going very quickly, but time is almost time. Right thought is really the core of this practice of meditation. I wanted to read a passage to you which gives us maybe a little bit of a different uh, angle on the importance of what we hold in our minds and, and how much virtue enhances. Virtue, virtue is the adornment of the mind. It doesn't stop at conduct and speech, because mental activity is conduct. It's not physical conduct, it's consciousness conduct, it's intelligence conduct, it's mind conduct, it's heart activity. And the mind is a, 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 an excellent fabricator, <laughs> or it's always creating these creations, fabrications, formations in the mind constantly, which are expressed as thoughts. So to have right thinking, non-ill will, non-cruelty, non-harming, these are the most beautiful thoughts, and thoughts of renunciation, like to be able to give up that which is unwholesome, and to receive and grow, fertilize, cultivate, that which is wholesome. That is how we grow in virtue. And this particular um, scripture is very much about the virtue of the mind. And from this fountain of virtue that is here in the heart, which we can uh, really care for, just like a mother or father cares for a small baby and, and watches it grow. It will care for us. Pure conduct, pure speech, 
come from pure thought. They don't come by themselves. For one who is virtuous and follows the ethical norms, the ethical, the morality, there is no need to want, may freedom from remorse arise in me. So if we have pure intention, which is the, the you know, the karma, if we do something with wholesome intentions and wholesome thoughts, it's pretty much the same, then we're creating good karma. And then there's a greater chance that what we speak will also be beautiful. And how we treat others and ourselves will also be lovely. It'll be safe, it'll offer safety, trust, respect, uh, goodness, beauty in this world. And we will live without regret, without remorse. And even if we <coughs> fail to uphold that, but we have right view, right understanding of how to stay on the path, then we can rein ourselves back in and acknowledge, take responsibility. Then we can live without regret and remorse. And then we're following the Tathagata, the Buddha. We're, we're playing that music, that sound of loveliness, the Dhamma. We're bringing it to life in our own being, our own embodiment. So then we are in accord, we're in harmony with nature, with liberation, with that which will free us. That one who is virtuous is free from remorse, and free from remorse, we are content. Contentment. To be satisfied with little, to be content, to give up that which is unwholesome, and to receive that which is wholesome is the biggest gift. Most people think the biggest gift is something that you can buy with money. Yeah, money is energy, but you can buy it or you can put it in the bank. You like to see your bank account grow. This is a different kind of account. It's a karmic account. We're players in the Buddha's orchestra. And the account that we're keeping is an account of, of purity in body, speech, and heart. There's purification of intention. How we intend with our minds means this is how we will be able to pay attention to the breath. How we will intend the breath when we observe the breath, how we will intend our minds when we meditate, how we will aspire when we seek fulfillment in our practice. So one who is satisfied and content with that kind of account is joyful. Joy arises. How much joy we we find, and this joy that we um, experience on retreat is like nothing 
that the world can offer. When we discover it, we become so excited, like almost surprised. We almost stumble on it, but it's a natural process. If we purify our minds, and we we come in here, we keep precepts, we respect each other, we offer each other silence and, and space and sanctity, a spiritual sanctuary. It's a sanctuary, it's a temple. And then we enter the temple of our own heart. Each of us is sitting in this heart. You might think your heart is, is, is sloppy or gross or unworthy or so many opinions. We renounce our opinions and we simplify and recognize, no, I've taken precepts, I have a pure intention, I'm entering the temple of the heart, which is in itself pure, and I'm ready to sit and grow that purity. And if we let go all the unwholesomeness arising in the mind through that pure intention, this is called hindrance duty. The five hindrances are free, like they're, they're not playing in accord with the conductor. They're all over the map. So we tell them to behave. And hindrance duty means if you're f- feeling angry or irritated or agitated or restless, full of doubt or um, can't wait for lunch, can't focus on the breath, you know that the hindrances are disrupting the purity of the heart. They're disrupting the sound of silence. They're disrupting the ability to focus and be intent on, at one with, integral, involved with the breath, in the boat of the breath, riding the breath, alone with the breath, secluded with the breath, content with the breath. Can't do it. So our duty is to expel Abandon those unwholesome hindrances. That's hindrance duty, is abandon. As soon as we notice, abandon that unwholesomeness if it's there. And realize the origin of it. Well, that's because that was doubt. That, that was gr- It's a thought. It's an ill-begotten thought, not worthy of this embodiment. And so we make ourselves a worthy vessel for the Buddha Dhamma to rest in, to settle in. We abide in that. So it is an abiding of integrity, of moral alliance, of moral unity, moral wholeness. It's an organic process. We're respecting our own true nature. So... And the, the second thing is that uh, uh, if it hasn't arisen, we know how to remove it. If it's on its way in, we know how to prevent it, I should say. We know when it's there, we know how to remove it, and we know how to prevent it from coming back. And how do we prevent it? 
by focusing, by devoting, by dedicating our attention appropriately, yoking, yogaing ourselves to the present moment. This is pure presence, ever transcending the haunts of the world. This temple is not a haunt of the world. There are no ghosts in here. So we can abandon them. That's hindrance duty. We see the hindrance, we know it for what it is, we see its origin, we know that it's suffering. And then we abandon it. Then the suffering, this is the thir- it's the third noble truth. We don't just linger with suffering and say, well, anger, that's my habit. It is, it's not who we are, it's not what we are. It's just wrong thought, wrong intention. And we don't accept that because we're following the Tathagata is our conductor. So we remember, what, what was that? Oh yeah, this is dukkha. We, we move on. We remove the hindrance. We remove it and we prevent it by fully dedicating our attention to pure presence, the temple of the heart, the moral allegiance, conducting ourselves as the Buddha instructed us. And then we're using the teachings. This is mindfulness pouncing on the hindrance. You know the way a cat pounces? Oh, I don't want to use that image. (laughs) It's too violent. We don't want to be too violent. Actually, there are times when the hindrance is having such a free-for-all with our minds. Our attention is so caught and so overwhelmed with our grief that we can't remember the instructions. Okay, Buddhang one day. If we can just, what the chant, chant. Bhutang one day. Focus your heart on Bhutang one day. Yeah, freedom is possible. One day. Right now, one breath. Bhutang one day. I devote this breath to the Buddha. Then you're in alignment with the conductor. It just means turning the mind, knowing that you can, if you've ever been a sailor, Sometimes you can't go in you can't go into a stiff wind coming straight from uh, in front of you you have to tack so when you chant it's like you deflect the hindrance even if you deflect it for a moment you've tacked then you can tack the other way and you're making a forward gain you're moving away from hindrance not moving with it so you're moving towards integrity. You're sewing together, you're repairing, restoring, refurbishing the wabi-sabi. You're repairing the broken, beautiful gift. You're giving yourself a gift. Your virtue, your pur- purification is the adornment of the gift through your own v- virtuous intention. It's a virtuous intention is what leads us to freedom.
I better read the rest so you... And the joy of knowing that we have these tools, we have this map that the Buddha gave us, we just have to trust it, devote ourselves to it, and follow it regularly, continuously, unfailingly, seeing danger in the slightest wrong turn. It's like, not only is it a waste of energy, and as we get older we have less and less time, less and less energy to do that. So when we do do it, joy arises because we see the result. If you go on a diet and you lose weight, you see the result and you feel so happy. This is a much better diet. And the thing is, if you keep doing it, your mind so loves abiding in the purity of the Eightfold Path, it never wants to go back to the old habits. It relishes the, the new gains that we get on the path. So we get even more and more joy that strengthens, strengthens us to go deeper and deeper and deeper into our own hearts layer upon layer, we dive into the depths and we know that we can eventually realize the deathless because it's a natural process. It's a gradual unfolding, just like the, the orchids on the shrine. They start like this. They even start smaller than that. And invisibly, we don't even see them open. Then one day, there's this bud looks like it's going to pop. And then you're not looking and suddenly a petal comes out of this magnificent, delicate, fragrant form. This is what the heart is opening in that way. Joy arises. For one who is joyous, the body is relaxed. Oh! This is a very important connection. When we experience the joy of right view, right thought, or right intention, right speech, pure speech, pure action, or moral speech, moral action, harmless speech, harmless action, coming from that right, that aspiration for holiness, for transcendence, for upliftment, for being raised up to light the darkness within. No matter how dire we feel, we can do Bhutang one day. We can revere the Buddha and revering the Buddha over and over and over again, we train ourselves to be a daughter and son of the Buddha. What does a daughter and son do? A daughter and son emulates and receives their inheritance. By receiving their inheritance, they fulfill the legacy of their parent. I think of the Buddha as my father. So joy arises, the body is relaxed. If the body is relaxed, we can practice. If the body is tight, contracted, constricted, disabled, dysfunctional, taken over by the hindrances, we, we can't even breathe. 
our space is not our space. We don't have a safe space within us. We get sick. We get physically ill. And these are not illnesses of our imagination. But we are spiritually ill, all of us. I know Ajahn Chah came to IMS many years ago and the yogis were doing walking meditation and he went up to one of them and said, are you mentally ill? Or some, some you know, he was asking if, if everyone was mentally ill because we are mentally ill. We all have this illness. And we want to be healed from this unwellness. This is, the Buddha was the doctor of all, all time, doctor for the universe, could heal all illness. Some people were choking and saying, I've taken the green pill. You take the Dhamma as your true medicine, you become joyous and your body will relax. And when the body relaxes, we can really practice better, we can embody the teaching. One who is relaxed feels happiness. The happy one's mind is concentrated. This, when, when the body is relaxed, the mind is relaxed. When the mind is relaxed, what happens? We can meditate, truly devote ourselves inwardly. We, go, we are led inwards, you know. Leading inwards. Pachatangwe ditabo winyuhiti. Opanaiko. Pachatangwe ditabo. This is leading inwards to be experienced by the wise. We get, we start to really understand what the Buddha is conducting. He's the conductor of the train to Nibbana and we're on it and we, we start to get it we start to lean into the direction of Nibbana in everything we do not only here in this temple of the heart or this temple, this sanctuary of uh, insight meditation society but when we go back into daily life we take that aspiration with us and we align everything in our lives to be conducted in this way to direct us in this precious way towards freedom. One who is relaxed feels happiness. The happy one the happy one's mind, that's us, is concentrated. We, I'd rather say, is stilled, is brought to the cessation of it's having a relationship to the hindrances. We free ourselves from that. But that's not enough. It's not enough to free ourselves from the hindrances. We also have to develop the enlightenment factors. One whose mind is still understands as it really is. Understanding as it really is, one grows dispassionate. 
we become cooled. We're no longer wanting, longing, yearning for the world. We're yearning for freedom from the world. Because we know the benefits of that. And we detach ourselves from worldly aims and values. And then, with that kind of coolness, with that kind of detachment, we experience the knowledge and insight of liberation. This is just from using the Buddha's instructions day by day, moment by moment, and dedicating ourselves fully to the work of the path. It's a purification from beginning to end. We never stop this polishing. We polish on the outside, that's the form, and then we polish invisibly from within. And we become shiny. I have a beautiful uh, quote here. Okay. I did have it. Never mind. Well, I will say a different one. Slightly, it's the same thing in slightly different words. Forgetfulness is the dark. Mindfulness is the light. I shine this light for all life to see. And the other quote is from Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, who is a survivor of the Holocaust. He said, that which is to give light must endure burning. So we start with suffering. It burns. But not to take it personally. This is just... Burning is is the first step. If we know this is dukkha, it's impermanent, it burns, it's suffering, it hurts, it's contracted, but you buddhang one day. You revere the Buddha, you pick up the path, you intend your mind towards the Dhamma, and you have one little centimeter, one tiptoe hold on the mountain. Some people, you know, they can abseil a mountain with these toeholds. Sometimes it feels that dire. But we, we can endure it. And then we know this is not me, not mine. It's empty of self. There's no one who is suffering. If we take it as something is wrong in my life because I'm suffering, then we're back in the darkness. We've forgotten the teaching. We've forgotten the instructions. We're not in harmony. We're not polishing. We're just enfolding, enveloping ourselves in suffering and taking refuge in that which cannot give us refuge. We become identified with it. It actually makes us feel alive. 
but it is a death. Even if we were to die with a mind that was full of light, but the body was dying, we will have been freed. The body will never free us no matter how lean, how beautiful, how agile, it cannot free us. But a mind that is pure, even if it's lean, simplified, renounced, can only be bright and, and shiny from its own integrity, has no information, doesn't remember much, but is purely present and at peace. That is the deathless. It is for all of us a possibility, thanks to the Blessed One.